All right, welcome to this episode broadcasting live again from sunny New York. I am very, very lucky to be in the presence of Emily Parker today because we met recently at South by Southwest Festival. We did a panel on blockchain tech and I am so excited to, to, to welcome you to the show. How are you doing today? You good? Great. Yeah, I interviewed you. Now you're interviewing me. So yeah, the roles are reversed. Exactly. I get my revenge Come full now. circle. You did such a great job on that panel and um, I've, I've done some digging online about you and your life and you have done so much and there's so much to talk about. I, I always like to start these by giving you a bit of an opportunity to give people who are listening a bit of a breakdown about your history and the, the stuff you've been up to. Sure. Okay. So where do I start? Just it's like- a it's a big question. I mean, you've done so much. Let's let's start around the the kind of journalistic work. The kind of what brought you into Web three. Just just have at it. Okay. Sure. I'll try to keep this relatively concise. <laughs> um, so I started out as a journalist. I started out at the Wall Street Journal actually, um, and I was writing a column about China and the internet, basically looking at how um, ordinary citizens were using the internet to get around like controls to get around political controls because as many people know China has state media and they censor a lot of information but the internet was like a way to get around that so that's how I kind of got into like the China tech thing um, and I've been doing Chinese for a really long time I started Chinese in high school so that was kind of the through line and then I started looking at that question like okay so the internet and social media is a way for people to sort of like get around government control it's probably not only happening in China it's probably happening in a lot of other countries so I started looking at Cuba, at Russia. Um, and I wrote a book um, looking at that exact topic, like how ordinary citizens in China, Cuba, and Russia were, look- were using the internet and social media to basically like either fight for change or just like get out the truth or communicate with each other. So that um, that was like a very big project. Now, during that time, I did a bunch of other things. I um, worked briefly at the State Department, at the U.S. government, also on like the internet freedom agenda. So that's like, we can get into that. It's a whole other thing. Um, and I did two startups. One was a social media startup and one was a blockchain startup based in, in Asia. And for how I got into like Web3, so for me, like I was always really interested in this idea of like decentralized technology and the power of decentralized technology. So, you know, here's the internet and, you know, now everybody kind of hates social media, right? Like it's really popular to talk about how annoying social media is and I get that. But like when you're in a country where the government has like always had sort of like the final say and there's one version of the truth, social media really was like, you know, a game changing thing in places like this. Mm. Um, so... And it was something that no matter how hard authorities try, they never could completely control it because that's the thing. It's like social media is not like one place. It's like many different platforms. It's many different voices. So cryptocurrency is a very similar concept, right? Except it's not information, it's money. It's decentralized money. And so, you know, with the internet, you have like information that can't be totally controlled by the government. And with cryptocurrency, you have money that can't totally be controlled by the government. And so I got interested in it when I saw that cryptocurrency was starting to boom in China and the Chinese government was getting nervous. I was like, wow, I've totally seen this story before. This really reminds me of the internet. And that's kind of like, I was really interested in that tension. And that also brought you into uh, what you do with Coindesk. Yes. So first I was at, um, I co-founded a blockchain startup based in Asia um, and was, was there for a while and then went to Coindesk from there. Because I, so I, my introduction to you, obviously on the BCL panel at South by, there were so many 
questions and things that we just skimmed over the surface of, I thought I need to sit down with, with Emily Parker and start to dig into a few of them. I feel like there couldn't be a better time to be having the conversation about Web3, especially when it comes to financial international movements. And I try my best to stay as far away from politics as I can mm. in general, but I can't help but ask you a couple of questions. Sure. And, I, and I'm going to start by one which is maybe... Uh, a little basic, but I want to do that because it's a very common question that I had in Discord before this uh, this interview. So you're very you're very well travelled, and you understand the differences in cultures more than most, which is fair to say. You spent a lot of time in in China. You speak many languages. You understand what's happening in Russia at the moment. You've got a good idea of the political infrastructure. Now, a common question that I'm asked about cryptocurrencies is if cryptocurrencies are decentralized it's just money that people trade in in a way that doesn't have a centralized entity there's this idea that people go well a government who owns like a fiat currency dollars or pounds or whatever that government has like little control levers mm-hmm. you know they can change interest rates or they can uh they can augment variables within within that currency that keep it safe or at least people are right. led to, to believe so whether you look at the printing of the us dollars or you know, changing lending rates in the UK or whatever it is. People kind of, if I was to distill this question, they go, isn't it bad that those control levers, those abilities to change elements of the currency, if they're taken away and it's just left to people, is that not going to end in a bad situation? Are are the control levers not a good thing, just playing devil's advocate? That's a great question. We're getting right into it. It's a great question. It's a hard question. Well, first of all, the assumption, if we're saying like, isn't it bad that cryptocurrency is going to shake up the system, sort of assumes that the system is working, Mm. right? And, um, you know, I think like we come from countries where, you know, I mean, people have problems with America's monetary policy, or I don't know, you know, I mean, but but it's not necessarily, people aren't, I don't know if people are really up in arms about it, right? So, you know, cryptocurrency was born after the 2008 financial crisis, where, you know, the creator of Bitcoin was like, this isn't working. Like, this system isn't working. So it actually, in some ways, like, that was a little bit of the intent. Not to mean that, like, governments don't have any control over, you know, monetary policy anymore, but just to give people a little bit more control over their own money. And the idea behind it then was this idea that, and we're seeing this now, right, all over the world, is that in theory... A government can just print money indefinitely, right? And when they print money, the value of the money goes down. It's, you know, inflation and in some countries, hyperinflation, right? And so the idea of Bitcoin, which has a fixed supply, is that it's supposed to be sort of a hedge against inflation. Now, whether it is or not is still like remains to be seen. I think in the U.S., we're only really starting to like a lot of us are only really starting to feel inflation for the first time. But in other countries, that's another thing. Like you have to kind of take this out of the U.S. context, right? Like if you're in a country with like hyperinflation, you know, like some countries in Latin America, for example, like Bitcoin is a store of value, right? I mean, these cryptocurrencies are protecting your savings um, in a way that a, your national currency is not. So like there's, it, you know, so less like, yes, do we, there, there is a concern about it shaking up monetary policy in a bad way, but it also can protect citizens from monetary policy that's not working, right? I guess especially if they're from a nation that is utilizing US dollars, but the printing of money doesn't affect the nation that you're in. If I got that right, because that seems to be a no-brainer in terms of 
a system that doesn't function. Well, just or even if you just look at like, I mean, you know, countries where Bitcoin has, you know, gotten a, a real following, you know, a country like Venezuela, a country mm. like Argentina. I mean, there's are countries that are just battling inflation. Right. And so, you know, people or, you know, I mean, you're seeing you're seeing it all over the world. I mean, I think sometimes like, it, you know, in, in, in at least here in the U.S., like people don't really feel that they're not like, you know, yes, there's inflation now and mm. it's a, become a big topic. But I don't think people are worried like really seriously worried that their savings are going to evaporate or be useless in a year. Like in some countries, like inflation is so real, you know, and it's so tangible. And so people are like, where do I put my money? You know, it might not be that easy to get dollars. It might not be that easy to get another currency. So Bitcoin kind of serves that purpose, you know, Mm -hmm. or say you're in a country, for example, where you're in the political opposition, right? And at any moment in time, you feel like the government can just like seize your bank account Mm -hmm. or just, you know, prevent you from, from taking your money out of the country. You know, I think Bitcoin can serve that purpose. So I'm, I'm, what you're saying actually is very valid and, and, and it's a concern. And that's why governments all over the world are concerned about it. But there's like another side of it too, right? You know? Yeah, well, I mean, because I, I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. A lot of my listeners know that I've, I've really been involved in Web3 is quite deeply. I love the concept of it. I think if I was going to gamble my money, I'd prefer it to be given to people mm. in a free, completely free kind of unpoliced market. Mm. Uh, then, then hoping that there's a few people at the top of a of a financial team in the government mm. are going to do, are going to, what's the best way of putting this? Give actions that are for the best interest of mm-hmm. the people, mm-hmm. really. Right. So I think that, and another swing for you maybe more is is like, do you see any negatives in removing these control levers of a traditional governmental monetary system? Is there anything that you're worried about? You're a lot more kind of clued into to this space. Mm. Is there any warning flags that you go, hmm, Bitcoin's great, but what about this? I guess we're not really at that point yet or even mm. close to that point where I see like Bitcoin really threatening the mm. like the monetary system, you know, at least of the United States, right? So it, it seems kind of far off, like where it's one or the other. Um, and I think, you know, the governments all over the world are putting a lot of like regulations in place. So I guess mm. like it's hard for me to imagine a point where Bitcoin is like shaking up monetary policy to such a degree that the government loses control. But yeah, I mean, is that could that be problematic? Like absolutely. But I think we're pretty far from from that happening the best timing for this conversation is what you say about Mm -hmm. the idea of freezing assets Mm -hmm. you know i like whether you're talking about art which is my background and music this ability to create assets monetize them own them yourself not need to be beholden to a record label etc right up the 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 chain when we're talking about international policy we're talking about um you know uh what's you know seizing of assets from people in, in other countries right now we have an international crisis going on and it seems like a good thing that all of these financial sanctions and these, you know, taking away off yachts from oligarchs and stuff, it seems initially like a good thing that we have the ability to do that. But Web3 really questions that now because one of the one of the really hot topics at the moment is going, is Web3 good or bad when it comes to international conflict at the level that we're sure, seeing right now. Sure. So the sanctions thing is a real question. I mean, this is a really popular talking point, both in the US and Europe. You're hearing mm. this where, you know, um, lawmakers and policymakers are saying, wait, like, what's the point of these sanctions if people can just use, if Russians specifically can just use cryptocurrency to get around them? Now, this is kind of a controversial point because a lot of people in the cryptocurrency industry would say 
that that's not really happening to any significant effect. And this is this is just sort the, of the an, what's not happening. The, the sanctions evasion. And the reason right. why it's not happening is because contrary to sort of popular opinion, Bitcoin is not just this like murky pool of dark money where, you know, nobody knows where it's going and you can't, you know, you can't mm. see it going from A to B, you know, Bitcoin is traceable to a certain degree, right? I mean, that's kind of the whole idea of it. So there's this kind of paradox in Bitcoin where that like people are like, oh, it's like, you know, it's for freedom. It's like it's for, you know, relatively anonymous transactions. But in reality, transactions are recorded, right? I mean, that's part of Bitcoin. And so we've seen in some like very high profile hacks or crimes that money has been able to be found because law enforcement has basically traced it, you know? I remember, I heard an interview, I can't remember the woman's name. It was a forensic accountant for, I think, the FBI mm -hmm. explaining that, that crypto is like a dream come true for a yeah. forensic accountant it's, because it, it, every transaction yeah. from the start has been recorded. And it's as long definitely as you better get one than wallet, cash. It's sure. definitely yeah. better than cash. And so, yeah, there, there, you will hear law enforcement saying things like that. They're like, oh, we're glad it's cryptocurrency because we can trace it. Now, is it easy to trace? No. Like, do you need to have some skill and time? Yes. Is it possible? Absolutely. Right. And so that's the thing. Like, can can potentially Russians use cryptocurrency for sanctions evasion? Maybe. But like, it seems more likely it would be in relatively small amounts as opposed to like transferring massive funds from one country to another. Um, it just that just doesn't seem that feasible. The other thing is like you have to think about the end point. Right. So it's like, say, you know, somebody is trying to like move crypto from one country to another. At some point, they're going to have to put that crypto into some sort of fiat currency. And that's where you hit a lot of regulations because it's not that easy to do that, again, at large scale without some sort of like KYC, know your customer. So I think for the, for sanctions evasion, obviously, you know, this conflict is relatively new, but like at least what a lot of people are saying is that at right now we don't really have evidence that this is happening at scale just because of the nature of crypto. It's not really that practical a way to get around sanctions. It's, it's tough to deal with that double-edged sword because on the one end you see Zelensky in Ukraine raising huge amounts of money mm. through NFTs through mm. crypto donations right. and it's a beautiful thing to see this idea that people will dictate the flow of support sure and every cell in an organism of, of thinking beings are going to be able to to support the the side which they believe is, is most righteous and I guess my worry is then well well what's the other side of that coin and mm. what's happening behind the scenes at the moment and it's it's actually kind of hard to tell right now. Well, I really I'm really glad that you're asking these questions. I think they're so important. And like even when you look at like Ukraine, right? Like I feel like they've raised some crazy amount of money, like over a hundred mm. million dollars in cryptocurrency, right? This is like a totally new era in conflict that that can be done. But like let's just like think about this for a second. Like okay, yeah, here again in the U.S. And you know, sorry to be speaking from a U.S. centric point of view, but like you know, a lot of people are are, are for this, right? They think this mm. is great. But by that same, but what if like $100 million were being raised for a cause that like less people were in support of, right? Mm -hmm. What if it was for something that was like, what if it was for a government that was doing something really bad mm -hmm. or what, what if, if it's happening right now? We just don't know about it because our press isn't reporting it. And I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. And, right. Or like, what if it, you know, what if it was, what if, what if, what if Russia was doing that? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the same thing, like what if Russia started a campaign to raise a hundred million dollars? Would people mm -hmm. be in as supportive of that? You know, would people think crypto was great? I mean, it's still the same tool. So I think this is really um, an important point because it's like people tend to like these technologies when they're doing things that are like they support, but like mm. the technology itself is neutral, you know? And so it could be used for by any side. And um, 
That's just a that's just a fact, right? It's not like this inherently like good peace loving thing. It's mm. something that could be used by any side, and this is something that and this is where the social media debate comes back in. I was again. just going to say yeah. this, this is this is what makes me think about how you were approaching this from you know take rewind us a little bit and take us into how you felt when you saw social media developing and, and taking sure. on steam. Sure, it's a great question. So like okay, so look at social media right now. N- now like social media in general, it's really like trendy to like hate on social media, right? Like everyone just thinks social media is, you know, destroying democracy. I'd say that in some ways is like a prevalent narrative. Um, But it wasn't always like that, right? I mean, if you rewind, say like a decade and you go back to around the Arab Spring, um, the narrative was completely different, right? I mean, the Arab Spring, the narrative was like social media starts revolutions, like, you know, this government, the Egyptian government was in power for decades and nobody could do anything. And then thanks to Facebook, like there was a revolution that was, you know, and everybody was so excited at that point. And like to a degree, like that was true. I mean, like Facebook didn't start the Egyptian revolution, but it definitely played a major role. There's like no, I mean, there's no part of like historical revisionism that can change that. It definitely played a major role. However, people weren't very happy with how it turned out, right? I mean, like, I I think, like, you know, just because social media helped overturn a government in Egypt doesn't mean that it put in a government or put in a system that people were happy with, right? So I'd say that was, like, the beginning of people's sort of, like, disappointment about it, you know? And I think also... And and forgive me for my poor understanding of of history. What was it about the result that people weren't happy about when it came to... Well, I just I think it's people just felt that like Egypt didn't, you know, miraculously become this like peaceful, democratic place that, you know, and and, and it was kind of just like people's expectations were social for social media were just way too high. Like Mm. who said that that was going to happen anyway? Like that that's was the problem. It's like people were so had such high hopes for this. Right. And it was very effective in sort of like bringing down a government. It turned out to be a lot less effective in creating a new one, you know, that that people thought was was what people people wanted, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happened is, you know, some of the things that were great about social media ended up being kind of like a liability because one of the great things about social media is that it's like leaderless and decentralized and there's no like hierarchies, you know, mm-hmm. at least supposedly. Again, very useful for bringing down a government, not useful for creating a new government, you know? Th- then you get sort of chaos. So I'd say like that was where the turning point began. And then again, it's like the same thing that you just said about crypto. It's like people love social media and they love crypto when they feel like it's bringing a result that they like. Mm-hmm. But then like, I mean, for example, again, a really good example here in the US is Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump used social media very, very effectively, right? I mean, he was like the king of Twitter for a while, you know, yeah. um, now he's off of Twitter, but he was he was very effective in social media. I mean, that was legitimately true. Whatever you think about him, he was like, this medium really was good for him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, He's like, you know, the short sound bites and and like he was legitimately, you know, skilled at using social media, I'd say. And so all these people, again, who like loved social media when they thought that it helped like Obama become president, all of a sudden, like Mm. really didn't like the idea that it could also help Donald Trump become president. But it's just the same tool, you know. And so I think like there's been a lot of things like this. And then, you know. A more sort of obvious examples would be like, you know, people being like, oh, wait, like terrorists use social media, too. You know, Um, I mean, that's like, you know, something that people kind of figured out. And so we went from this like one extreme of people being like, social media is so great. It's going to like start revolutions to people being like, social media is so bad, like terrorists use it and like governments, we don't like use it. And it's just, you know, it just misplaced expectations. And sometimes I worry a little bit that something similar will happen in crypto as well, because people like don't learn from history. And I just sometimes hear people talking about crypto like it's like this 
this world saving thing. And I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, again, it's a tool mm. and it can be used. A tool can be used in many different ways. And are there many like really cool, good ways that crypto is being used? Sure. But could like bad actors use mm. crypto? Absolutely. You know what I mean? And I think like when we start seeing more examples of that, there's going to be a lot of disappointment. It makes me think of where we're at with NFTs. On the on the panel we did the other week, that was same response. It was like NFTs are a tool and right. the good and the bad will be brought with that tool. People yep. will use it for rug pulls, they'll be ripping people off, they'll Absolutely. be you know but then there's the other part of it where people artists can make a genuinely amazing living and it can support people that never would have had a chance totally. to have a career before. Totally. So I hear that in a in a big way. And uh, and what's what's the What's the main parallel that you draw when you think about what happened with social media, the excitement, the adoration for it, and the way that it turned? Do you, do you basically feel like that's where we are now coming into the into the crypto space? I feel like we haven't learned enough from the past, basically. Mm. Like, I feel like we should look back and be like, hey, remember when everyone was so excited about social media and thought mm. it was a tool for good and mm. thought it was going to bring down governments? Like, I just sometimes hear, like, similar rhetoric about crypto, and I just feel like those people are going to be in for a pretty big disappointment, you know? Um, and that doesn't mean... Again, and, and, that, and that's, like, a solidified viewpoint for you that, that it is going to be a disappointment? Like, I think if you think that crypto is just inherently, like, a force for good and a force for revolution and a force for, like, democratization, then yeah, you'll probably be disappointed. Like, mm. I think it has those attributes, but I think it can be used in different ways as well. And like, one of the things that I find most interesting that's happening right now, and again, I saw this with social media, is like this battle for control between people and the governments. Like governments want in on the action too, right? Mm. All over the world. Like not only are they trying to regulate crypto, you know, they're also trying to issue, for example, central banks' digital currencies. Mm. I don't know if you know about these, but like- Well, we have like, we have like the Bitcoin right, thing coming right, up. Right, right, right. I like what- I hear what you mean about New York uh, radio. Yeah, now. it's just like thing. atmosphere. Yeah, this is this is the thing. New York yeah. radio is just click like this. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening, you can hear a banging. It's just the radio is kicking off. Um, but yeah, we have a Bitcoin literally being made right now, and it seems that every bank in Europe and every government are looking to legislate now. And it feels like a good thing for the space in general to have this mm -hmm. legislation. But it does beg the question: It's like, well, is this going to be a bit of a step backwards? I don't know. It's just a different animal, right? I mean, like the most advanced on this is china mm -hmm. and china has but 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 sorry and sorry to cut you off there you say the most advanced is, is china yet they're banning digital currencies well so they're doing two things that are, are so yes they are banning many aspects of cryptocurrency there are still some things you're allowed to do but they've come down on mm -hmm. it pretty hard because this is a government uh, this is a currency that they cannot control at the same time they are issuing a central bank digital currency mm -hmm. which is totally different from Bitcoin. So they're two separate things. Like Bitcoin is this decentralized thing, like off the government's radar. Um, the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, is basically a digital version of China's pre-existing currency. And it's issued by the government and it, it can be tracked. And so it's causing a lot of controversy mm. because like it's, it's highly trackable, right? Which is, you know, again, Bitcoin, you know, is trackable to a certain degree, but it's not supposed to be like the government is like can see all of your transactions. Yeah, so you. like yeah. philosophically... It's kind of the opposite of Bitcoin, you know, and um, this is something that China has already sort of um, at least, you know, it, you know, it's, it, it's been it was used at the Olympics, you know, so um, and it's not just China. There's like close to 90 countries that are looking at doing this. The U.S. Mm. is still on the fence, um, partly because of the privacy concerns. They're mm. like, you know, this is how do you do this and not have it be like totally trackable by the Fed. Mm. Um, but yeah, so like, again, like this is like but again, I would argue that this these central bank digital currencies 
cryptocurrencies are not really cryptocurrency. They're a whole different thing. They're a whole different beast. Yeah, it, it feels strange to me. It, yeah. Because it feels to me like someone sitting on the fence going, ah, oh, people want crypto. They yeah. want to have this. They want mm-hmm. to have this freedom. Let's let's go and create it. And they're mm-hmm. chasing the tail of this beast that's like a decade ahead of them. Mm. And they're hoping that people are going to use it. I guess they're going to force people to use it. <laughs> but you, you know, There's ways I mean, yeah. to compel them to use it, it, it sure. Exactly. Yeah. But I find it interesting to, to learn a little bit more about the position of China because from from my experience, not having much visibility, for to be completely honest, about the, the you know, inner workings of China, from the outside looking in, it looks like they're very against cryptocurrency, right. very against digital assets, very against this whole movement that's happening. But I guess that's not 100% the case. They're not into it. They're, they're wary of it, right? I mean, so mm. China, you know, um, which is kind of where I've like probably the cryptocurrency market, I probably know, you know, it, it, the, it, it, the best. Um, China... It, you know, it, China crypto was booming in China, right? And that made authorities nervous. And they made authorities nervous for various reasons, some of which were legitimate. I mean, so, you know, there was like a huge ICO boom in China, mm. initial coin offerings. I'm sure you remember those. Those were basically where like a startup would fundraise using tokens, mm-hmm. um, but like they could fundraise for kind of anything, you mm. know? And so I think the Chinese government- They could fundraise for Mark coin. Yeah, oh, made, yeah, 100%. Yeah, 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 100%. And so- I think the Chinese government was super nervous, like, you know, that all these ordinary people would like lose their savings. Mm -hmm. And like, that was kind of a legit concern. Like Mm -hmm. ICOs in China were problematic. So in 2017, they first clamped down on ICOs. They were like, Mm -hmm. no more ICOs. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were like really hardcore about that. And it was like, okay. But then they also, you know, became concerned about trading in general. And, you know, there's various reasons for it. I mean, China has capital controls. That's one of them. There's a limit to how much you can take out of the country. So I think they were concerned about crypto being used for that purpose. Um, yeah, so China, it's it's pretty hard right now to, and and they they you know they they last year as well they've been kind of increasing their their control over this area. I mean, there are still people in China who will find ways to do it. It's not like it's completely blacked out, but yeah, I mean, there it's something they've definitely been super wary of. So, and I guess this is similar in a way to the reference you keep bringing us back to with social media. You know, there's same thing in, mm. in China particularly they tried to ban these yeah. things they were worried about the the kind of dissemination of, of information sure. and it's it's basically like playing this whole thing out again which is why I think I'm so fascinated by your viewpoint yeah. because you know as you take us through where where web3 is going now uh, and bearing in mind you know all of these bans essentially mm. got lifted at some point down the mm. line like where where do you think this is all going for for both america and china where where do you th- what, what disparity do you think is going to end up i mean i think you're right i think it will start looking a lot like the internet like china kind of has its own internet right mm. i mean so that's what what china did which in some ways was like i mean you know they they Crack down on, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Google. But what they did was they kind of replaced them. You know, like China has a very, very, very active social media culture, but they're Chinese brands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a weird way, I mean, maybe that's a little bit what they're trying to do with crypto. It's like, okay, we're going to make it really hard to trade Bitcoin, but use this instead, like use our own digital mm-hmm. currency, you know? So I think there's a world in which, yeah, like China could just sort of be on its own different system. However, I mean, one of the good things about Bitcoin is that it is resistant against that to a certain degree like you know i mean china can't shut down bitcoin entirely it's just not possible right i mean they would have to just sort of like shut down the entire internet i mean they're not going to do that right so you know i think what china's done is it's like raised the barrier to entry like in a very significant way but it's not like impossible to you know get bitcoin in china but it is illegal right now 
Um, well, I, it's not, it's, there are certain things that are illegal. Like so mm. China has clamped down on like certain types of exchanges, you know, again on ICOs, but it's not like just, just like holding Bitcoin itself. That's I, not illegal. No, I don't China. believe so. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I guess this is why it's good to talk to people and mm. actually learn the facts. As far as I was concerned, it was completely banned, illegal, can't do anything in, in, in you know, Bitcoin or cryptos in China. And that's the other thing that I, I find interesting about this space is the second there's a problem with one ecosystem, you could just make another one. Like mm-hmm. I, I joke about MarkCoin all the time, like especially if I'm talking or explaining something about NFTs or currencies, it's like anyone can make a coin that mm-hmm. does anything. That's right. You could even just build it on top of Ethereum, make a layer two solution on something and just... And NFTs are huge in China, you know? But but I guess if NFTs are huge in China, like I see, I see cryptocurrency and NFTs is almost being one and the same thing. It's the trading of the digital asset. Right. So I don't understand how that can be so big and supported and legal. It's a little bit different. Like the sort of NFT culture in China is a little bit different. So for example, like... But it's still a trade of value and money, no, essentially? Well... And, and between nations, because you talk about your right. capital controls. It's like, if you're sitting on like a, a CryptoPunk or a Bored Ape or whatever, and you're mm. trading these NFTs, that can be millions and millions of dollars yes. coming in and out of the country. So I, I guess... That's where I, where I find it a little bit hard to get my head around. Well, China has also has its own version of NFTs as well. So, for example, like there's a service called um, like the blockchain. I think it's the Blockchain Services Network (BSN), um, which is kind of like they they are they're, they're NFTs, but they're more of the permissioned variety than of the sort of like totally decentralized public variety. What do you mean by permissioned? Like the sense that they can like disable an NS- NFT if it's like if it's like in somehow critical of the government or something like that. Yeah, but the, I guess that's such it's a, a it, such a strange one because that's it's not very the... strange. It's very strange, but it's a different. It's a very different kind of. So that's like that's like being in a system where you could go, okay, so I bought this NFT for fifty bucks, and then a couple of years later, it's worth like twenty million. Mm-hmm. But then someone in the government goes, actually, we've decided that that doesn't fit our like narrative, so mm-hmm. we're going to just like disable that. Like, how how would people feel comfortable investing or trading in a platform where it can just be pulled from under your under your feet? I mean, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, maybe um, the majority of NFTs that are being traded don't fall into that category. Mm. So people aren't, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's something that I definitely want to learn more about. But that's the thing. I mean, China has this way of doing things in its own way, mm. you know, and sort of by its own rules. And it's very different from, you know, from, <laughs> from how it's, we think of NFTs. It's like, I mean, a, a slight kind of uh, sidestep on, on, the, on that kind of China situation, but there's a, I don't know if you're aware of that uh, scam that happened with the Board 8 Yacht Club through OpenSea. Mm-hmm. And one of the debates I've been having, I, I say this often because I jump on Discord before these interviews and I always ask people, I'm like, what do you want to know? And one of the questions was whether or not these marketplaces, similar to what we talk about with the Chinese government, it's like, should marketplaces have the ability to rectify or you know, change hands of NFTs mm. or refund mm. if there's been a hack. Should they even be able to? Because the whole pretense of this is that if you're operating on the blockchain and you're making your transactions, there's no middleman. There's no one controlling mm. it. No one can take your stuff mm. away from you. Should we even allow third-party places like OpenSea to, right. to go and make these changes? Because surely the reason why everyone's buying into the system is the absolute freedom and the absolute free market nature of this system. And it's like, if you make a mistake if you get scammed, it's fundamentally your fault. And 
you can't go to someone for help. Do you, do you see what I mean? That's mm -hmm. a really interesting debate for me. I'd right. love to get but your, this is, your this input. Is, this is such a big question, right? Because it's not just OpenSea. I mean, think about all the people that trade cryptocurrency through exchanges. Those are mm. third parties, right? I mean, in theory, you know, people say like, okay, you should hold your crypto in some sort of like hardware wallet. But a lot of people I, don't I do. do. I know what you mean. Because it's like I every time I, I do transactions through, through exchanges, that is actually in the back of my mind. Right. I'm thinking... What if these guys go bust? What if there's some sure. major hack? So I make my I make my trades and then I'm straight out onto hardware ledgers. That's yeah. But you're you're I, I don't know if you're representative, right? Like I don't know the numbers of this, but I mm. think like a lot of people, especially new users, they're like, I don't want to be responsible for my own password because like for that, yeah, that comes yeah. with there's a certain responsibility that comes with that, which is like, you know, okay, you lose your your password, you're kind of locked out, right? You know, mm. there's no like customer service. And um and so, you know, I think some people ironically would prefer to use these exchanges, even though they are third party parties and mm. even though they like do you know just because there's a certain amount of like perceived safety in that mm. or perceived security. and you've got a customer support helpline so right. i do get that and, and just a quick to public service answer, announcement yeah. to yeah. everyone it's like if you are messing around with this remember your seed phrase yeah <laughs> that's the yeah. one thing i tell people a thousand times remember your seed phrase write it down somewhere safe don't put it on an email or don't send it to anyone but just write it physically down because yeah your seed phrase is, is your mm. lock and your key for, for your for your for your digital wallets that hold everything and that is the point there's no there's no police you can go mm. to and say, hey, I've sent a load of money to the wrong guy. Please, can I get it back? Yeah. It's like, no, 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 you're on your own. That's, and that's the point. But that's like what's so funny because, you know, again, cryptocurrency is like, wow, this is so revolutionary. Like there's cuts out the middleman, but like there's all these middlemen getting in now, right? Mm. I mean, it's like all these institutional players or credit card companies, you mm. know, because there's always going to be like that certain demographic of people who kind of want to go through like the traditional trusted channels, mm. you know, they're like, oh, I want to go through my bank or I want to go through my credit card company. Like they don't want to be out in the wild, you know? And so that's like such a paradox of crypto because on the one hand, it's like people are really attracted to its like rebellious nature, but for it to become mainstream, probably a lot of compromises mm. will have to be made, right? And so we're already seeing that. Like one of the, you know, big phrases you hear a lot in crypto is like institutional adoption, you know, institutional adoption is pushing up the price of Bitcoin, which is probably true to a certain degree, like Wall Street adoption, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also like when you think about it, it's also a little bit paradoxical, because like, wasn't Bitcoin supposed to be kind of like anti Wall Street a little bit? Like, wasn't mm -hmm. that the point? I mean, I don't know, maybe it wasn't I, I kind of thought it was a little bit supposed to be the point, right? So but yeah, well, that, that comes down to this idea of this social organism that mm. we're talking about. Like, I, I always think about us all as these little cells in this body. Mm. I, I think I'm stealing that from a book called The Social Organism. I, I, I read it ages ago. But one of the one of the kind of concerns I have is, yeah, everyone made this, this financial system that was against Wall Street because they didn't like the idea that there was mm. this small group of people with huge amounts of infrastructural wealth that could swing it one way or another and tranquilize the prices for their own benefit. So then the social organism comes in and now the power of all of these cells moving together and ebbing and swaying and investing what they do i feel like the more and more and more people that get involved with this maybe i'm dreaming here but the, the less likely that a small group of extremely wealthy people will be able to swing it but i don't think my knowledge of financial systems is enough mm. to know like maybe you'd be able to shed some light on that because do you do you feel that it that when mass adoption happens and when basically everyone has some amount of Bitcoin, there's still going to be this in, this this top 1%. The whale problem, it, you know, the... Yeah. the I don't know. It's a good question. I don't. I don't know if it's. I don't know. But I mean, there has been the case with various coins, like this concentration of wealth problem, right? Mm. You know, where you've just had like you know a, a small 
a, a small, a relatively small group holding a disproportionately large mm -hmm. amount. So yeah, it's still, it's definitely still an issue for sure. I mean, decentralization is really hard, right? I mm -hmm. mean, there's, you know, it's hard to do that. I mean, how do you like enforce that? It should it be, you know, it can't, can it, or should it be enforced, you know? So it's hard to kind of, um, yeah, like just kind of ensure that, you know, wealth is evenly distributed. Well, but there, there's uh, a, so it's been a concern in, in the Bitcoin world for a while about, you know, that exact concern. And also when you get these like big institutional players getting involved and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about that in crypto, like whale alerts and who are these whales, yeah, and, you know, yeah, and yeah. how like, you know, a handful of players sometimes can appear, appear to influence the market, which, you know, is not supposed to be like that. But then again, I guess at least we have the visibility now. Mm -hmm. At least we can right. see it on the chain yeah. and we can go, okay, well, at least we know that this money's moving. Maybe mm -hmm. it gives mm -hmm. some better transparency. I mean, what like what do you think about um, about having middlemen involved? Like, Do you think that there's a, a, an important place to them? Or for you, would you rather everyone just have their independent wallets and make their independent decisions? Where I mean, you know, it sort of doesn't even matter what I think because it's like if for Bitcoin... Of it, it matters what you think. That's why you're here. <laughs> well, what about it matters what I think in the sense of like regulation because like yeah. for Bitcoin to become mainstream, like it's going to have to play by the rules to a certain degree. Like again, this is another one of these paradoxes, right? Where it's like, you know, so on the one hand, like it has to make people comfortable. So when people mm. feel comfortable often with like gateways that they know and they understand, right? I mean, like if Bitcoin was still in the early days where like, you know, it was seen as like really dark and murky, like maybe it was more like pure, but like there were also a lot less people involved and the price isn't nearly what it is today. So like, you know, I feel like, you know, the the crypto world, they're very preoccupied with getting this sort of like, yeah, the average person involved or the average person has like a certain comfort zone. But then there's also the regulatory, you know, part of it. Right. So like, you know, the, and we see this again with the sanctions conversation, like as long as regulators see Bitcoin is like potentially being used for criminality, you know, potentially being used to um, evade regulations like they're not going to trust it and they're going to make it really hard you know what i mean so it's like again there's just a certain compromise that's need, gonna need to be reached and that compromise is probably going to disappoint some crypto purists right where they're like wait so okay so wait i have to provide all this information about myself like you know when you um apply or to to, to to get an account on some of these exchanges, it's basically like opening a bank account in terms of like the amount of information that they want from you. And um, it's not like, so this idea again of Bitcoin being like anonymous mm. is just sort of not, you know, if you want to trade it and if you want to trade in a relatively safe way, it's quite likely that you're going to be asked a lot of personal information. I had a conversation where someone was explaining to me that if you have Bitcoin, you can do all kinds of criminal things. Mm. And the, the way I was explaining it to her was, to say, if you bought Bitcoin in like 2013, yeah, maybe you're not registered to a wallet. But right. anyone who's doing stuff on exchanges due to KYC, the Know Your Customer protocol, exactly. you have to give your information on. And the other thing to bear in mind is, if you've got like $100 million in Bitcoin on a, on a hardware wallet, like anonymously, you're going to buy something at some point. Right. Well, so there uh, you just actually, you just perfectly explain the whole sanctions evasion thing, right? Yeah. That's exactly you're, you're, what it is, when right? When you yeah. buy that yacht or when you buy that right. mansion or you buy that Ferrari, right. it's like, well, all, all of the, the, what's the best way of putting this? All of the forensic powers that B need to do is to tie the wallet address to the, Right. So the withdrawal and right. the purchase. It's all about the on-ramps and the off-ramps, right? Like that's where you're going to yep. kind of like, that's where you're going to run into the regulators. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like on the one hand, it's like, okay, this should be somewhat um, calming to these regulators that are always so nervous about crypto. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, for like the crypto purists, I mean, some of them are like, wait, so if it's totally trackable and if it's not even anonymous at all, like how is this different from, mm -hmm. you know, 
anything else. Well, I mean, th- think about if you want to go back in the day and get a big duffel bag with a couple of million dollars mm. of untraced bills. Then, like, this is, well, you, you know, know, you know what crypto makes me realize is just like how amazing cash is, you know, and I don't mean like just for crime. I just mean like cash is like a, a truly anonymous form of money. And it's mm-hmm. kind of the last thing out there that's, that's like that, you know, yeah, yeah. and and um, yeah. So, I mean, that's um, crypto isn't and, and, you know, I mean, it's interesting. So there are um, certain like uh, innovations that are happening in the crypto world that are looking to kind of make crypto a little bit more anonymous or more private. Private is a better word than anonymous. Like, for example, like Zcash, you know, um, zero knowledge proofs. Like, there's some interesting... What, what is zero knowledge proof? I don't understand mm. what, what So that zero is. knowledge proof, and I'm not going to explain this very elegantly, but the basic idea is that it's a way to sort of, like, verify that something is true without, like, revealing, like, sort of the identifying information, right? So it's like, I can... There's a way to, like, verify a set of facts without sort of, like, Revealing to verify so, a set of facts without revealing the facts themselves. That's not a very good explanation. Don't but that's the general concept. Well, let, let me let me try this because I think I understand what you mean. It's mm. like if I'm if I'm the DVLA in the UK, which is the driving mm. license authority, mm. whatever. If I, if that's my company and I have all of the if I have like your mm. driving license and Nathan's driving license and mine, and I know that everyone's like I know everyone's info, it would be possible for someone else to be like, Hey Mark, can I check that like Emily Parker is real and that her mm-hmm. and, I, and I can be like correct now that person doesn't need to know who you are to verify that you're that's the general that, idea so it's almost like a turnstile effect of right. like you can you can you can authorize that someone is being truthful about something without knowing their information right exactly that's the right right it's without actually sending your social security number yeah you know? i don't so, need to give them your driving right, license number right. i don't need to give them right. your address and i can verify that it is what you say are who you say you are so i think that's a kind of a cool concept um so there's things like that that you know ideally like you know should be able to like make people feel more comfortable about like security without you know mm. just having to like send a lot of private information so i, I kind of hear that because it does feel weird now doesn't it like I was I was involved in crypto before the whole like kind mm-hmm. of KYC thing and I had my like Bitcoin on my little hardware wallet. But now, you know, if you're gonna use one of these big exchanges, like you say, it's literally like opening a bank account. Sure. They're gonna know everything about you. And my worry is like uh, which is which is kind of coming back to your like I'm I'm keen to hear your take on this on what you see on an international scale, but I've been trying to pay my taxes. Like, mm. I've been trying to understand mm. how it works because my business, I have a digital agency and I'm, I'm a musician and both are actually actively trading, paying for people mm. and bringing in income in these digital currencies. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to get left behind. So I'm going, look, how, how, do, we, how do we do this? And yeah. our government, our HMRC, they're just like, yeah, we don't know yet. Yeah, we don't know yet. And it's just like, well, wh- like, when are we going to know? Yeah. And how are you going to... Like, do you feel that governments are going to retrospectively claim or or even prosecute retrospectively on things that might have happened five years ago once they have the legal infrastructure to, to do it? Like, Interesting. Like, I mean, I guess anything is possible, right? But this is another thing, right? Like another myth about crypto where they're like, oh, you don't have to pay taxes on it or you can get it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's the same thing. It's like, it's not that easy, right? I mean, you know, and governments are really catching up to this, so... I think there's going to be a lot of kids that have made a lot of money with mm-hmm. NFTs and crypto and they've spent it all already. They're going to have a tax bill in five years and they're going to be like, look, you, you earn like, you know, 20 million selling your like apes and your, and your you know, cartoon dogs. And now it's like, you, you owe us like $200,000 in tax and they're going to go, what? Yeah. My friends told me I didn't have to pay it. Yeah. And then it makes me worry like what's going to happen in places, you know, like China, like Russia, you know, in the States, it's like, what, what kind of prosecutions are going to happen? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Scary. 
Yeah. And it's like also like, where do you kind of draw that line between like, again, like making this like, you know, acceptable and, and like legally acceptable and acceptable to regulators without just like kind of killing all the cool stuff about it, right? Where it's just essentially yeah. like exactly the same as everything else. And, and also the key being what you just said about the legal aspect mm. is like, you can look at, I, I can use myself as, as an example. It's just like, there are no laws yet. Yeah. So what am I supposed to do? There's actually yeah. no infrastructure yet. And I, I've dealt with other artists and, and other people in this space where they've got genuine like battles where people have ripped off their work. You know, yeah. they've, they've taken their images, they've NFT'd them, or you've got musicians where their masters are being exploited. And it's like, how do we prosecute these guys? And it's like- Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think like that's another reason why, like even though like the legal regulatory stuff can be kind of a downer in that like, yeah, you have to provide all this information mm. and it's like kind of much less the wild west. Without it, there's no way for this industry to grow, right? Mm. There's just no way. And you hear that a lot even in the US. Like the US for many years, like one of the big criticisms of regulation here was that was like super confusing. It just because like states are all doing their own thing mm. there's like all these different agencies all these different acronyms it's like nobody knew what was up right and you know on the one hand you could say like oh okay so it's like wild west but it actually wasn't really like you know because the problem was like a startup could come and find themselves breaking the law without even knowing you know and i think what, what that ultimately leads to is not people being like oh cool this is like a blank slate it leads people to be like you know what like this jurisdiction is actually really scary because like i don't even know if i'm doing something wrong and i kind of like what you said like is that bill going to come to me in five years or is the sec going to come knocking on my door when i thought i was being okay you know I, i'm just gonna go to singapore you know so so i guess like in that sense like you know you know sometimes people are like oh no regulation is coming but you see i mean to the extent that you know you can ever really um explain what's happening with bitcoin's price often when you see a movement from the u.s like moving towards regulation it actually seems the market seems to respond positively like for example like there was just an executive order on cryptocurrency now the executive order was i just, didn't understand what that was by the way that's could, that's fine no yeah. like yeah there's not because it, it, it didn't really say it, the executive order was like let's study crypto more i mean that's basically what it said it wasn't actually like telling anyone to do anything specific it was more okay. just like i mean it was telling people to like kind of learn more about this so it, and, and, it indicates at least that the u.s is interested in adopting it and and legislating it as opposed to a hundred percent okay a hundred percent right so i think it was seen as like a like the u.s first of all the, i don't think the u.s was ever going to ban cryptocurrency but that was a thing that people would say sometimes like mm -hmm. it's going to get banned but like okay they're not going to ban it if they're like putting this much effort into it that mm -hmm. was part of it um i also think there's an element that if you are going to maintain your status as a international hub of financial transactions you can't look at a technology like this and stifle it you right. have to adopt and allow it right so if you want to keep yourself in that kind of traffic hotspot yeah yeah, that's right. I think I think that's very much so the US uses a lot of like kind of language like that. It's like, how do we balance risk with like out stifling innovation? So they mm. get it like they see that like and also it's just like the US is really going to sit this out like no, I mean, it's going to happen all over the world. And you know, there's so much like there's so much energy and startup innovation. And like, I think the US government, you know, there's a lot of um, different views in it. Like, I think there's people in the US government who are very pro crypto. There's people who are very like wary of crypto. There's people who have no idea what it is, you know? So I think the other thing about the executive order that was seen as like positive is that um, it was like, okay, well now maybe more people in the government will like understand what this is because it's yeah. actually dangerous if people don't understand what it is. Cause then, Especially if they're legislating it, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like, there, there was a whole thing with like the infrastructure bill. I mean, it's kind of very technical. I'm not going to get into it, but like there was a whole thing where like um, there were some clauses in there that didn't really make sense for crypto and could have had a really bad effect on crypto and could have actually led to parts of the crypto industry leaving the US for good because it seems like maybe the people who wrote it didn't really think through all the different 
mm-hmm. aspects of it. So yeah, so the executive order, it's like, okay, A, they're not banning it. B, they're taking time to, they're going to try to understand it better. Um, and C, there was nothing in it that was like bad, right? There was, you know, nothing in it that was like, you sh- can't do this, you can't do that. It mm-hmm. didn't have any like negative kind of thing. It was just more like, we're going to sort of, let's take this more seriously. So, so those things were seen, but like, you know, I think, you know, some people would be like, oh, regulation, like that's scary. But no, in general, I think like the markets, like when, when regulation, um, regulatory clarity is, is generally seen as a positive thing. Even if it means that there's going to be more rules, it's probably better. And you phrased it really well just now. Like, it's like, yeah, because people could just end up breaking the law by accident or, you know, or getting ripped off or getting scammed or, you know, so. And I guess people in general don't like to be a part of something that doesn't, at least on the surface, seem like it's welcomed and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, legislated by their local authority. Like, if I was going to talk to to my nan, for example, I'm sure she'd be like, oh, that sounds dodgy because, you know, sure, like, sure. there's no one you can talk to or, you, you know, you could get scammed. And and I guess, you know, as we, as we think about this episode and, and there's so many things that we're going to have to do other episodes about in the future. But like one thing that I'm looking to, to round off on from from your perspective is you've traveled a lot. You understand a lot about different markets. You've, you've been a part of um, kind of being a, a, a key journalistic force in this market for for quite some time now especially with your position with with coindesk what's your advice to someone who might still feel a little bit wary about crypto what's going on what would you say to people who haven't yet taken a step in and they're interested in it they might be a bit scared in it they're worried about what's happening in china and russia like what's what's your advice to people like that Mm. Well, I think there's so much educational content around. So just like learn about it, you know, and I think the thing about crypto is like you can experiment in it in a pretty low risk way. Like you don't have to buy one Bitcoin, you know, you can buy fractions. And I think like, look, my view and obviously I'm you know biased about this, but I don't think this technology is going away and I don't think this is disappearing anytime soon. So the sooner you understand it and the sooner you have hands on experience with it and the best way to understand it is getting hands on experience. So I would say like, yeah, like dabble in it, like, you know, like like buy a little bit that is not going to hurt you in any way financially just to kind of get a sense of like how this works and 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 what it is that's kind of the best way to learn about it and you know understanding that it's risky and volatile but again you can buy a tiny tiny fraction of these coins you know money that is not something that is going to cause you any kind of distress if you lose it you know always always i mean i think with crypto is always you know be prepared to lose what you put in right so i think that's you know always something that people should be aware of that you know it's it's you know and i feel it's just important that it's like the lesson is more how to utilize the technology right. isn't it it's like mm-hmm. even if you've got 5 bucks get someone just functionally understand how does that system, exactly how does right that you can you work? can do it with some a very small amount and just like try to you know at least learn about it is what i would mm. say i don't think everybody has to be converted to crypto i don't think everybody has to use crypto i don't think everybody has to invest in crypto if you're not into crypto that's cool like that's the great thing right there are many other options mm. but i do think like learning about it makes the knowledge sense base is important, yeah because yeah. again it's just going to become a, a bigger and bigger part of the story mm. it already is such a big part of the story so just sort of being like oh, i don't understand it or it doesn't relate to me or it has no uh, relevance in my life i think that's going to get harder and harder mm. to to do that so i would just say like that's my advice to people just learn about it that's it you don't have to be into it you could learn about it and decide like i don't want anything to do with this that's cool but like at least just like you know at least come come at that from a more informed perspective like just sort of being like this is for criminals or this is for you know i mean that's yeah, yeah. that's um not quite accurate so well also you know one thing that i i, I sound like a broken record whenever i talk to people about the topic of people always ask me oh what coins mm. this what coins that mm. it's like 
I don't know. No one yeah. knows. Like yeah. both me and you, I think we're, we're very straight up like, and a, and a shout out to everyone listening that anyone ever that tells you that they like know what direction a price oh, movements happen. Yeah. It's, it's bullshit. Or they know it's why like, they're yeah. like Bitcoin went it's up like, because yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's completely, completely perspective uh, investments. Yeah. And the last thing you ever, ever want to do is take financial advice from, from anyone, including, including me and including Emily as, as educated and, uh, and as in the space as you are. And as much as I've been in the space, you know, the honest truth is no one knows, no yeah. one has a clue. Yep. Um, it's all perspective and, and understanding that is, is another really, really important thing. And, and I'll ask you a, a tricky question because on the note of the fact that no one should ever take financial advice from mm. a YouTube video, are there projects that you're looking at that you think, oh, this project's interesting to me because of X? Is there anything that you pick up? Mm, I don't know if there's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty... I'm pretty neutral just because I see, you know, so like I'm mm. a TV anchor. So every day we have like, you know, different guests coming through. So you kind of hear yeah. everything, you know, so do you, so, do you trade day to day because you're getting so much information or are you a hodler? Um, I'm, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I trade day to day. No, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty like, I'm pretty much in this for the, the longer Cause that, term. That speaks volumes. The fact that you are doing your anchor work, you're getting so much information from the ground mm. every day, yet you still choose to to huddle, to, to, to have your investments and to leave it. You don't mm -hmm. go and play that game of trying to guess the pri price. Well, I mean, I think that's the other thing, though, when you've been in it for a long time and mm. you see how things fluctuate and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's just, I, I think, me. I mean, everybody has different points of view. But for me, like taking a longer term view, you tend to see cycles more, you know, mm. like sometimes people get like so excited about a price jump and they'll get so upset when it crashes. And it's like, okay, I've seen, you know, various mm. versions of this, you know, but the point is, is that like, I just talk to so many different people and so many different projects. And, and, um, I wouldn't say that there's like any one in particular, mm. you know, I, I try to keep, you know, you can generally tell sometimes like who seems a little bit more sincere, I guess, mm. you know, that, that comes through just like, who's really kind of in it for something bigger and, you know, I mean, that, that sometimes you can tell just when you talk to like a lot of different people. So. All right. And, and, and last question before we wrap up, what, what's, what do you make of these metaverse spaces? You know, mm. like I'm getting involved in Decentraland now. Mm. I'm involved in Sandbox. I'm building spaces. Like find it very interesting. I, I have no idea whether this is going to go to zero in a yeah. few months or, or whether these plots of land are going to be worth a fortune. What's your take on, on metaverse? I think the metaverse is super interesting. I like it in theory. I get it in theory. I still think that at the current moment, it's a little more of a vision than a reality, right? I mean, mm. wouldn't you say that? Like, I don't think like it, it, the promise is huge, but in my experience, the actual user experience is not really there yet, right? So like, yeah. so that's like the thing about metaverse. Like I sometimes meet people who are like investing in metaverse projects and I'm always just like, how do you even know? Because mm. like the product that you're looking at now, I mean, it's not, it's probably doesn't look that cool, right? It's all, it's all based on like a promise and a vision. And I think the promise and the vision are exciting for sure. But like the actual experience right now, I don't know. It just seems like kind of frustrating, kind of expensive, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of buggy. That's what, I mean, I, I haven't gone into it like as much as you have, but like, yeah, it's a little I frustrating. I mean, this is true just for VR also. Like, you know, like VR is something that's like super cool, but like the actual VR experience, the headset experience is like pretty far from like, I think where it will be eventually so i mean i've got to say i think you've nailed that like my my investments are, are very prospective and mm -hmm. also i think for me similar to what you advised about the bitcoin stuff is like mm -hmm. i'm getting into it because i want to learn how to mm -hmm. build spaces i want to learn how do i build like a concert venue how do i mm -hmm. do like a a, a, a a performance as a music mm -hmm. artist in this space so like yeah De decentraland sandbox they're very very basic yeah but i think that it's uh 
it's very much promising a lot. And I do think that buying these spaces or investing into the construction of it, my hope is that in that five to 10 year period, when graphics engines are catching up, when at the bandwidth of our mobile web is catching up, yeah, I, th I think you're spot on. Right now, I'm feeling like I'm on shaky ground for sure. I mean, I'm it means you have like a great goes. imagination and like a vision and a, and a, and a mm. conviction, right? Because like I think to be actively invested in the metaverse right now, it's like, yeah, you have to have like a, a vision of like what this will become as opposed yeah. to like what it is now. It's like you're investing in something that is not the actual thing yet. I, I also think that whenever I have watched humans do things, mm. I think like Ethereum is a great example. It's like they made Ethereum, oh, non-fungible token. It's like, okay, but no one no one would have thought about the human engine and the human ingenuity that was going to come to play right. and create like these projects and then there's the communities and then there's the value that they give the, the communities and then the, the, the social engine that then powers the economy of those villages almost, like totally. digital villages. And I'm sitting there thinking, I, I don't even think the value that we're going to see in these things has even been major. Right. I reckon, I mean, I've got, I got involved in Sandbox and Decentraland. And I, I would fully expect those things maybe to go to near zero in the next mm. couple of years. But I also would fully expect that it could be, you know, a million dollars a parcel. Like right. it's so wide open and, uh, and, and more to your advice. I'm, I'm not in a position where I will, uh, I will, you know, suffer horrendously if, right. if it does go to zero. I've, I've gone in, gone in prepared, but I also wanted to learn to use the te te yeah, technology. That's I wanted the to best learn. way to do it. Yeah, yeah, and especially with 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 the, my company and the things we do, being able to build digital spaces, I think will be a, an interesting service. I actually think one of the most in demand jobs in ten years is going to be like virtual, uh, like what do you call it, project management or mm -hmm. like event management. I can just, I don't know, I can see it, but it's exciting. I, I'm, I, I'm really happy to get your take on all this for sure. Thank you. I've got to say, uh, Emily Parker, it has been a pleasure. Do you want to do this again sometime? Sure. Because I feel like this has been a really good introduction to everything you do. I'm looking forward to seeing as this world develops. Your opinion is always so grounded, so leveled. So I just want to say thank you for joining me on COVID Talk. And I will thank see you. you next time. Yeah, thank you. Rock and roll.